right, we're starting a new uh, series of messages called Let Your Life Speak. And uh, in our huddle this morning, Lucy changed the name of my series to Let Your Life Speak Out Loud. And I, I guess she can do that because um, I like Lucy. Uh, hey, I, I'm wearing a, a sports coat today because I felt after, if you were at the Dream Team party on Friday, uh, I just felt like this huge need to get respect back. And, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, then I apologize. But uh, if, you, if you were unable to make the Dream Team party and you're part of the Dream Team, uh, we really missed you guys. And uh, you would have had a lot of fun. It was, uh, it was a good time. Uh, a good time had by all. It smelled a little still like uh, smoke in here uh, from our luau party, but uh, it was a good time. So we're starting this new series, and uh, I, I kind of want to kick the series off with a, with a confession and, and maybe uh, a, and a slight apology to you. Uh, the confession is really, it's, it's this idea that um, statistically, you spend... 95% of your time outside of, of church on Sunday. And, and yet what, what we often do in the, in the time that we spend together is often spent teaching you things like how to pray, uh, how to worship. We, we talk about the value of community. We talk about the, uh, the importance of worship and, and entering into his presence with singing worship and uh, and all of those things are really, really good things. But the reality is, is that th- those things are really are kind of the, the time. And, you know, even, even when we teach you the value of serving, it's like, how can we teach you the value of serving on a Sunday morning in this context? Uh, and when 95% of your life is actually spent outside of this context, my confession is that in some ways, along with many other leaders, especially in America, uh, I feel like we have treated you all the same, right? That, that, that in teaching about all of those things, it's really kind of uh, the underlying principle is that everybody functions the same way. And in reality, you are not the same. You are all very different. Some more different than others, or more more different. No, it, you are all different. You were created uniquely. You were created for a plan and a purpose. And yet oftentimes in the church, what we do is uh, we kind of blanket present things in a way that would imply that you all are the same person. Uh, and I would argue that that's just not the case. And I would also argue that much of what we prepare you for is the 5% of your life. And rarely do we enter into the 95% of your life. Uh, if you talk to anybody who's been a part of the Disney organization or especially those who are part of the parks, the theme parks, you will never hear them use the words, you'll figure it out. They don't use those words because they prepare, they plan, uh, they train their people so that they don't have to figure it out. And yet in the, in the church, in some ways, the confession is that we have basically said that not in your general call, not your general call to follow Jesus, but in your unique call, this special particular call of your life, the confession is that I've basically said you'll figure it out in the 95. See, I believe what it, part of what it means to be the church is to actually equip people for the work of the ministry, 
And so if we're to equip people for the work of the ministry, we have to assume that the work of the ministry doesn't take place in the 5% of your life. It actually takes place in the 95%. And yet, most often, we rarely address your 95. So what we're going to do as a part of uh, kind of a a three-pronged approach to how we do ministry and bringing wholeness into people's life is we're installing and launching a tool that will help you with the 95%. That this tool is called Unique, Y-O-U-N-I-Q-U-E, see what they did there? So Unique, and this is a, a tool to help you discover the plan and purpose that God has created you for. What has he created you uniquely to do in this one life that you have to live. So on May 13th through the 16th, we'll have uh, a accelerator uh, course of this. And it's available to the first 30 people that can sign up and register for that. And as a uh, kind of a a first adopter to this, uh, the cost is going to be very, very minimal. I can't promise that as we move forward. But uh, this is an investment into people discovering what it is that they were created to do. And that's beyond just the 5% that you get to do here. It's what do you do in your life? What job are you doing? What, what is the culture and what is the world telling you that you're supposed to be? And saying, no, God, what do you say that I'm supposed to do? So uh, we're going to be doing that from May 13th through the 16th. And then after that, we're going to be training up coaches throughout 2019 so that in January of 2020, we can launch into multiple of these groups so that we can get as many people through unique as possible. All of that to say it's to help us understand God's unique calling on our life. But here's the limitation. The limitation is that we can, I can talk about it. I can even take a few people through the process and understanding the tools, use the tools that are available to us to help people understand their plan and purpose. But at the end of the day, I can't pull up alongside each and every person. Even if I had a few helping people, we can't, we can't do that individually. It has to be done in groups, and it has to be done in things like the Accelerator course and in the small groups that we'll be launching in 2020. At some point, there's a, a trust that has to take place that you actually have to take the steps to go through the process. Bob Goff said it this, uh, this way this last week. He said, uh, God is betting that we'll have the guts to be who he made us to be rather than acting like somebody he doesn't know. What, what we can do in this context, because th- this is the limitation, at least in a Sunday morning experience, what we can do in this context is put down a biblical and theological foundation to what it means to have a life calling together. It's like if you were planting a garden, right? If you decided I'm going to plant a garden, I can come alongside you and I can help you see the rocks. I can help you remove some of the rocks so that you have an environment, so you have a soil that is actually uh, conducive to reaping a harvest that God has for your life, to become who God has created you to become to be and to live the life that he's called you to live. So some of the questions that we're going to be answering 
and taking a look at over the next couple of weeks are, are you drifting or are you seeking? Are you wishing or are you dreaming? We're going to talk about that today. Are you derailed or are you faithful? Are you working to rest or are you resting to work? See, the thing with drifting is that we're, we often have this personal drift in our life. We're caught up in a current of losing our sense, losing our way, losing our meaning and our purpose. We live in a culture that is moving so rapidly that oftentimes it's easy to get sucked into the current of our culture and forget who we are. We don't recognize that we have a calling for our lives, and so we find ourselves settling for an imitation rather than the real thing. I don't know how it was in your uh, home growing up, but when I was growing up, uh, whenever my family was going through financial difficulties and stuff, I, I, I knew it was happening because I would see a change in our cupboards and in our refrigerator. All of a sudden, we would go from having Dr. Pepper to Mr. Pibb. Or we would go from having the cereal tricks to some cereal called pranks. <laughs> or, or life and to some cereal called live it up. It didn't even make sense. Fruit Loops to Fruit Rings, Apple Jacks to Apple Orbits. Lucky charms to fortunate jewels. Like, it was this weird imitation, like generic brand version of the real thing. And I don't fault my parents for it. I understand the reasoning behind it. But the, the lie the imitation sells you is that you get the real thing for half the cost. But it ain't the real thing. You eat it, and initially it tastes like the real thing. But there's always this thing called the aftertaste that does not taste like the real thing. And you can even eat the imitation on a regular basis, and all of a sudden you start convincing yourself that it is the real thing until you go over to your friend's house, and he's got actual tricks in his cupboard, and you eat the tricks, and you're like, where has this been my whole life? They are for kids. They, like, this is, this is it. Or you drink a Dr. Pepper after drinking. It's It's different. It's, it's not the generic brand. It's not the imitation. See, we're, we're tempted, because of the culture around us, we're tempted to live generic lives. We live the lives that someone else tells us that we should, or we live the life that is expected of us, or we live a life that someone pays us to live. And if we're not careful, we'll buy into the imitation and we'll miss out on the real thing. We really need to stop wishing and start dreaming. Because often what happens is we, we go through this life saying things like, I wish my life was different. I wish it didn't look like this. I wish this wasn't a part of my life. I wish I had this. But wishful thinking is just fantasy. What we need to do is start dreaming again. Not just our kinds of fantasy-type dreams, but I'm talking about dreaming the God kind of dreams, the dreams that he puts into our hearts. If you have your Bibles, you can flip to Ezekiel chapter 37, and we're going we're gonna to go there in a second, but I'll, I'll give you some time to get there, because last week, Kyle talked about uh, how we struggle in American culture to rest and to sleep, that he even, he even gave the statistic that most people wake up 
tired, even after they sleep, that sleep doesn't even bring them rest. And I think it's interesting that everyone has trouble sleeping, but at the same time, they have the same kind of trouble living, living the life that God's called us to live. That we're zombies by day and insomniacs by night, and it's in this world where we have forgotten how to sleep that we've also forgotten how to dream. See, when you stop dreaming, it, it gets replaced with fantasy or, or it gets replaced with survival. How many of you feel like you're just in survival mode? And certainly we go through these seasons and these ups and downs of, of just getting through this season, but I'm talking about it feels like I'm on this treadmill and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere, and it's because it's not. You're just spending a lot of energy to go nowhere. Ezekiel chapter 37. So prior to this encounter that we see God having with Ezekiel, you see the Israelite people, and they've been going through these uh, deep valleys, right? They've had all of these experiences where it seems like they turn their life around, but then they find themselves back in despair, and then things turn around, and then back in despair. And, and, and this is after they were in captivity, right? So they were in Egypt, and God delivers them from Egypt. He, he, they wander around the wilderness for 40 years before they go into the promised land. And, uh, and in the book of Judges, it reminds us that if God is able to take Egypt and turn it into the promised land, if he's able to take them from there and bring them into this place, then we are more than capable of taking our promised land and turning it into Egypt. So the darkest moment of their life is during this thing called the exile they're doing their own thing. They've decided that they're just going to do whatever they want to do. And so God removes his presence from the temple. And a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he absolutely he goes into the Holy of Holies in their temple and just absolutely desecrates it. I couldn't even give you an example of what that would look like because it was so holy and it was it was, it was so sacred. This room isn't even close to the sacred nature of how they viewed the Holy of Holies, and Nebuchadnezzar just absolutely desecrated it. And so they're in a dark time. They're in a bad, bad place. And God shows up to Ezekiel in a dream and talks to him about a potential new future. Starting in verse 1, The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I'll put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, all of a sudden there was this noise, a rattling sound, and the bones began to come together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath, from the four winds, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. 
And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open up your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. So the picture here is Israel is in the middle of this exile. They feel as though they are hopeless, and God gives them a vision. It's a vision not just of any graveyard. It's not just a bunch of of white bones in a field. This is a graveyard of their friends and their family. And he asks the question to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And I love Ezekiel's honest answer, right? God's speaking to him in a dream, and he says, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And he's like, I don't think so. He didn't say that, but he said, only you know, God, because he's saying, I'm looking at the reality of the situation, and these are dead. They're not even just partially dead. They're all the way dead. If you've ever seen Princess Bride, you know there's a difference between those two things. It's partially dead and, and dead dead. And he's saying there's no flesh, there's no tendons, there's no blood. Like, they're, they're dead. And God comes to Ezekiel and says, I want you to speak. Speak to the wind, the, the breath. And the word in the Hebrew is ruah, that, that, that he's saying, I want you to speak breath to them, that even the winds would come and that the Holy Spirit would bring life. It's really a picture of, of Genesis. It's kind of a re-Genesis, if you will, where, where God creates Adam and Adam, uh, he forms Adam, but it's not until he breathes life into Adam that he comes alive. There's breath that these bones need in order to become a vast army. I really want us to hear this this morning in the way that these people are hearing it. That God creates out of brokenness. That no matter how dry you feel, no matter how broken you may think that you are, God regenerates and God recreates and restores out of brokenness. And once again, he breathes life into us. So how do we live in a world that's broken? I mean, that, that's, that's the culture that we're in. If you, I don't care if you don't listen to the news or social media or any of that. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to discover it's, we're fractured. The world we live in is fractured to some extent. And how do we live in the midst of brokenness, we live with hope. See, there's this battle that's taking place with Ezekiel because God's giving him this vision and this word for the people. And, and there's almost this kind of this threefold battle that's taking place. And, and the first part of the battle is for Ezekiel's eyes. Can he see beyond the reality of a field full of bones? Can he see a different future for them? 
And so Ezekiel's having to have the eyes of God. He's having to have these eyes to see the current situation and the current reality as something that could potentially be different. And I wonder if we could have the same. In the culture that we live in, in the fractured world that we're a part of, could we have the eyes to see something that's so broken and see a preferred future that God has for it? See, oftentimes I think we, we view things through our own eyes. And we just throw up our hands and say, well, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. I just wonder if God's eyes maybe are the things, the, the perspective that we have to have for our world. That no, God actually can bring the dryness of our world back to life. But it's going to require his breath. So there's the battle for Ezekiel's eyes. And, and it's this battle to look at the world through the lens of hope. It doesn't see things the way it is. It sees things the way it could be. And, and kind of the best picture I have this, and I've used it before, is that if you take your hands and you just put your hands this close to your, uh, to your eyes, you don't have to do this unless you want to look as foolish as I do, but, uh, and, and you say, this is my current reality. This is, this is my reality right here. And this is anxiety. This is depression. This is fear. But the eyes of God says it's like this. It doesn't mean that it just automatically goes away. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden everything's just unicorns and rainbows. But what it does say is that there's hope. That you can see beyond what this is to a preferred future that God has for your life. Part of why we have to become a church that dreams again is because if we're not careful, all we'll see is the brokenness and the mess. This is all we will ever be able to see and we will refuse to step out with God to do what he wants to do. We will wish things were different, but in the end, they'll remain the same. So the second battle that Ezekiel's facing here is not just the battle of his eyes to be able to see the hope for something better, something different, but also the battle for his hands to actually do something. The reality is, is there's a role in the kingdom of God that is just your size. That every one of us has a plan and a purpose and a place in the kingdom of God. If he didn't, we might as well just kind of white knuckle this thing till we get to the end. No, there's actually something that he's called you to do. And it's not to just bring coffee out on a Sunday morning and there's nothing wrong with that or serve our kids. There's certainly nothing wrong with that. But there is actually a plan and a purpose in your 95% in the rest of your life. But it's going to require us to step into it. Dreaming refuses to let us stay unengaged. Dreaming requires us to get involved. There's a, a man in Mark chapter 1 where uh, he has leprosy. And leprosy in the Bible uh, through antiquity, we see that uh, when you have leprosy, you are unclean. You have a six-foot radius around you, and no one is allowed to touch you, and you're not allowed to come within six feet of anyone. You tear your clothes, you mess up your hair, so everybody knows this person has leprosy and that we are to avoid them. It's interesting that what we find in, in, in kind of the principle 
of uncleanliness in Scripture is that when something unclean touches something clean, the something clean becomes unclean. Catch that? So, so this is the principle, and all of a sudden, in Mark chapter 1, this guy who is unclean throws himself at the feet of Jesus within six feet, and Jesus sees this man, and he, the, the Scripture, uh, or the Greek word says that he sighs with compassion. Because Jesus recognizes the reality of the situation, and the reality of the situation is not God's intended will for this man. And he sighs with compassion. And then he does something absolutely crazy. He reaches out and he touches the man who is unclean. And when he does that, everyone watching gasps. Jesus sighs with compassion, but everybody gasps in horror to the fact that someone who is clean would touch somebody who is unclean. Because when somebody who is clean touches somebody who is unclean, the unclean somebody makes the clean person unclean. But God changes the rules. Jesus, in this moment, changes the rules. He changes the perspective. In fact, he breaks the rules that everybody holds true. This time, when the clean someone touches the unclean someone, the unclean someone becomes clean. If we don't have eyes to see people the way that God sees them, we will never step into the things and the opportunities to see the unclean become clean. We'll never see the opportunity for people to experience the miraculous healing work of God in their life because we don't have hands of faith. See, the battle for Ezekiel's hands were to have hands of faith, to, to do something, to, to be in partnership with God. See, daring to do with God requires hands of faith. And the truth is, is as much as Ezekiel can get involved, as much as he can use his mouth to prophesy and to speak as he did, at the end of it, he needs and is incapable of bringing anyone life. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. You see, when we see what God sees and we do what God does, we don't just choose to work for God, we choose to work with God. We live with the expectation that God will do what only he can do and what he actually wants to do. I think we forget that our God actually wants to heal people. He wants to work in people's life. He wants to see transformation and brokenness restored in people's life. But so often we operate in this world in our own ability, in, our, in the hands that we can do something. A.W. Tozer unfortunately said it this way. He said, if God took the Holy Spirit out of the world, most Christians would keep doing what they're doing and never even notice a difference. That's how we operate. What can I do? How can I fix it? What can happen in my own abilities? And what if we started operating with the hands of faith that said, I can't do anything, but God can move. God can bring life out of death. I want to be that kind of place just selfishly, as a church, I, I want our church to be a place where 
where bones start rattling, where, where graveyards start shaking, wind starts blowing, and all of a sudden, the reality of the situation is much different, not because of anything we can do, but because of eyes to see the way that God sees in hands to do with faith what God can only do. That's the kind of world I want to live in, where the wind could blow and where the world of tomorrow doesn't have to be the same as the world of today. There's a battle for Ezekiel's eyes and this battle for his hands, but then there's this battle for Ezekiel's heart. It's the battle of his heart is to feel what God feels. See, when you've got a a God dream, when you begin to dream, you know that it's a God dream when it benefits someone else. If it's always to your benefit, if, if everything that we do in life is to benefit ourselves or to be about ourselves, or God, will you do this for me? Will you fix me? Will you do that? And, it's, and we, we're so focused on self. There's only one word that I know that, that adequately describes that, and that's the word narcissistic. When, when everything is about us, that's narcissism. But when it's a God dream, it's about everybody else. It's, God, what are you doing inside of me for the sake of other people? If I'm Ezekiel and I'm bringing this message that I've been bringing, by the way, for many, many, many amounts of time, and it's actually a very similar message that Ezekiel has been prophesying to the people of Israel, Israel, and yet now God is saying, okay, God is saying, this is what I want you to say. And, and he says it to them, and they listen. It's, it it's got to feel a little bit like an I told you so moment. right? And, and if, I'm, if I'm Ezekiel and, and I'm preaching a message over, it would be like me preaching a message over and over again, and then Pastor Jeremy coming up and and, and preaching the same message, and everybody like, yes, like, that's it. Like, why hasn't anybody told us this? And I would have a hard time with that because I would feel like, wait a minute, I already told you this. And so this is kind of an I told you so moment. But, but it's interesting that Ezekiel actually lays down his right to say, I told you so. If, if it's me, you know, I'm starting a ministry, I told you so ministries.com or something along those lines. But Ezekiel lays it down. And we're reminded of this, this same kind of picture in Luke chapter 15, where uh, it's a story of a, a dad who has a son, and the son comes to the dad and says, Dad, you're dead to me, goes off into a far country, ends up losing everything that he has, ends up in, a, uh, in, in, the, in the pens of pigs, eating the things that they're eating, which is a horrible aftertaste, worse than imitation cereal. And, and he's eating it, and he realizes in that moment, he realizes in that moment that even my father's servants eat better than I'm eating. And so he picks himself up, and he heads back to his, his home. And before he can even get the words out, I'm sorry, the father has been waiting for his son to return. He's been watching and hoping that his son would return. And his son is coming down, and the, and the father runs to greet him. He puts a ring on his finger. He puts a robe around him, and he embraces him and never once says, I told you so. It's really a picture of our heavenly father 
in the midst of our difficult circumstances and our decision-making and all of those things, and it's our Heavenly Father coming to us and embracing us and never once saying, I told you so. See, our, our Heavenly Father lays that right down. He could say it for sure. I think we all would have experiences where we, we knew it was the wrong decision, and yet we continued to make it, and God still, in His grace and His mercy, embraces us. He lays down his right to say, I told you so. And if God has given up the right to say, I told you so, I would imagine then that you and I ought to give up the right to say, I told you so. Because we live with the eyes of hope and we, we operate with the hands of faith, but we also, we also have a heart of love towards people. Refusing to live a life of imitation is embracing the genuineness of who God is. See, we can't wish our way out of the mess, but I believe that we can dream out of it. That when we surrender our life to God and we say, God, this is, my life is yours. We can dream it. We can wait with expectation for the Spirit of God to move in us and through us as we do. We can join God daily in the restoration of all things, to connect people to real love, to connect them to the real love of Christ and to connect them to the real life that God had planned and purposed for them. We could be an army of people that have once been dry bones and living under the cultural norm of the imitation of what it should be to live this life, or we could discover uniquely how God has made each and every one of us and what he's purposed and planned for our life will be much greater than anything we're currently experiencing. Let's pray. Well, Father, so much of, of this world that we live in, I hear all the time about what is my purpose? What's my identity? Who am I? Why do I exist? God, we know that you have a plan and a purpose for each and every one of us. But before we were even formed in our mother's womb, at, the, at that point, you have destined us for something. And every one of us has a place in your kingdom. None of us are a mistake or a missed opportunity. We are all a part of your kingdom. We're part of your plan for this world. And God, I pray that no matter how dry we may feel, no matter what circumstance may be blocking our vision, God, that we would have eyes to see people the way that you see them, that we would have hands to reach out and touch those who are hurting and broken. And God, that we would have hearts of love and compassion 
towards every person that we come into contact with. God, let us be a people who are living life on purpose and not just running on a treadmill, gathering a paycheck, going through the motions. There's more. There's more to this life than just that. God, show us. Show us areas. Show us areas of our lives where we've bought into the imitation. And God, let us press into the realness of who you are and into the power, into the presence of the Holy Spirit that can only do what he can do. But let us have the hands of faith to do it. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with God, that's the first step. You'll never fully grasp or understand who you were created to be until you've surrendered your life to God. Because only he can show you your, his plan and purpose for your life. And so if that's you, I would just invite you to step into that. And that's, it's, a, it's a step of surrender is what it is. It's, it's surrendering to the Lord. It's saying, God, I've been trying to lead my life this way for however long. And it's time for me to just give it over to you and let you be the leader of my life. And so if that's you, I just invite you to pray that right where you're seated. But today, there could be surrender to him. God, we love you. And we know that you have designed us very uniquely to be a part of your kingdom mission. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, I'm gonna have the ushers come and we're gonna receive our offering this morning, our tithes and offerings. I'm gonna pray for that. And then we're gonna, we're gonna close our time out um, singing one last song, which is just a, it's a perfect ending to uh, today's message because it's about identity. And so I'll pray for our offering as you guys prepare your gifts. Father, we, uh, we give not out of religion or compulsion. We give because we recognize that everything that we have belongs to you in the first place. We, we see this principle all throughout Scripture, and we just know how generous of a God you are to us. We recognize that this, in this moment, it's really a recognition that not only do we give of a tithe to, to acknowledge that, but we recognize that all the money that we have left is yours as well. So every decision we make really begins to communicate what place you have in our life. So God, we give freely without compulsion. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just go ahead. You can drop your card in there. And then after the basket goes by, I'm just going to invite you to stand, and we're going to close our time out singing that uh, we're no longer slaves. That, that the reality is, is that when this is fear and when this is depression and anxiety, that, that you don't have to live in this place. Allow God to begin to work in your world, in your life, and bring some hope that today doesn't have to be what tomorrow looks like in your life.